Daniel. Uh, it's uh, Daniel chapter 5. Third um, message I brought from Daniel. I thought I'm kind of mindful Advent is on the way. Uh, Christmas. I'm slightly startled this morning in the, uh, the school building where we meet in the morning. The, the Christmas tree is in the lobby. I was like, ah, okay. I know I kind of turned a blind eye in the shops to all the Christmas things, but I was slightly taken aback by the tree in the school. However, uh, I thought um, next week uh, I'd start a little evening series, um, kind of aware that uh, it's a question that is often um, raised and uh, it's been on my mind a little bit and seemed to be part of an Advent theme. I know we're not Advent next week, but um, about the question of, does, does every, does, why is Jesus unique? It's what Advent's about, the coming of, of God, of, of Christmas, of uh, the uniqueness of Jesus. And uh, to really kind of have a, a bit of time to think through the questions of, well, what about other faiths? It's one of the questions um, that is often asked nowadays um, in Alpha and uh, if we're meeting with people who don't have a faith. Well, why, why Jesus? Why not other faiths. Why not Muhammad? Why not Buddha? Why not uh, a mixture of all of those? Why not just the you know just let's all get on and love one another. All you need is love. There we go. Good old McCartney. Um, Bible's about love, isn't it? So uh, we're going to start a little theme uh, next week on about, uh, Jesus and other faiths, and um, and there's kind of hints of that in our passage this evening in Daniel 5, as in the whole of Daniel. Written to, uh, uh, or it's written, attributed to Daniel, the visions that he had in Babylon, in uh, what is now Iraq, uh, of the rulers, the powers of that age. And um, here we have uh, chapter 5. Uh, last uh, week, thought of Nebuchadnezzar and, and this dream and of, of speaking truth to power. Uh, this week, um, Nebuchadnezzar has, has likely died and it's his son now, or probably grandson, actually, Belshazzar. So King Belshazzar held a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. Uh, we're in the message there. Can you swap to NIV? Thank you. Look at that just so quickly. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. It's a big party, isn't it? A thousand of them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, uh, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple 
and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and the nobles, came into the banqueting hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. You, your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, uh, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and the ability to uh, interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. Now, I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read the writing and tell what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself. Give the rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of his high position. He gave him all the nations and peoples of every language and they dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from the royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have brought the goblets from his temple, brought to you, and, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here's what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peresses, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, 
Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Wow, let's pray. Thank you for Daniel and all of those, Father, that we are in the legacy of who have remained faithful, who have remained true, who have understood your ways, who have, have st stood for you in front of thrones and governments and spoken truth. That you have used and our history has been changed. And I pray that, uh, maybe not on the grand scale, but who knows, but that for us, in embracing the truth, loyalty and allegiance with Jesus, the story and the history of our families and friends, our neighbors, our communities, and indeed our nation would be changed as we stand, testify, speak truth, declare the reign and rule of God. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Daniel has been a profound book and uh, has affected our culture in so many ways. We use uh, in modern language this phrase, the writings on the wall. If the, the football team is about to go down badly, uh, the writing's on the wall for them. If, uh, if it's been going well in the, badly in the workplace, the phrase, it's the writing's on the wall, meaning that something has been concluded, something has been declared, something is finalized. It has been written and the outcome is set. The other phrase that uh, crops up a lot in, in, uh, in, uh, from Daniel, uh, from this uh, little uh, letter in the Old Testament is, is obviously getting thrown into the lion's den. That's the next chapter. Getting thrown into the lion's den means you're in the thick of it and uh, you're in trouble. It's amazing, isn't it? This little book is, uh, has become uh, one of those features that is common in our language. Shapes history. Shape the powerful and the, the destiny of this King Belshazzar, the, the son or possibly the grandson who took charge after Nebuchadnezzar. And he sat very lightly to truth, very lightly to the truth that he understood. He was aware, we're told in the story, that, um, that he knew what had happened to his, uh, his relative, Nebuchadnezzar. He knew the story of how Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler, the conqueror, the one who had, had conquered Jerusalem, had overthrown the temple, destroyed the temple, had carried off the nobles and, the, and all the, uh, the wealth and uh, the fittings and fixtures of the temple. That ancient faith in Jerusalem carried it away. And in the mindset of that time, that indicated that the gods of Babylon were greater than the God of Israel. It's like a power struggle. If the God of Israel was stronger, they wouldn't have been defeated. Nebuchadnezzar was victorious, and he knew it. We heard uh, last time, last week in chapter 4, of the dream of, of Nebuchadnezzar, of the tree, and of all things living, and finding food, and, and shelter within it. And, uh, and again, Daniel 
interprets that and says, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you, you're a great king, feared. But through your pride of thinking that you are the greatest, God will humble you. At the end of, of Nebuchadnezzar's life, he moves from kind of recognizing that there are other gods and other powers and, and of all these uh, forces that he would pay homage to, and perhaps he saw himself as greatest. He actually said, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. But Belshazzar, the next ruler, has a different attitude to that of his father. Carefree, arrogant, unconcerned, thinking he makes his own destiny, thinking he is in control. He gives a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he takes at that time the goblets that King Nebuchadnezzar had brought from the temple in Jerusalem, uh, and gave them to his guests for wine glasses. And as such, he, he shows a careless disregard for the things that are divine. He probably thinks they're mine. They are the spoils of war, the spoils of, of, of conquest. But use them carelessly, disregarding that these were set apart as sacred and holy Again, a reminder that he, he, had, uh, he was powerful and he had no respect for God or his people and did something that God said, I will put the writing on the wall. I was yesterday at a, a, an event uh, with the Zacharias Trust. Uh, I don't know if you've come across that, heard about it. Ravi Zacharias, uh, an Indian, Canadian and um, Michael Ramsden, the international, Amy or Ewing, they all worked for this, um, apologetics um, uh, institute um, that uh, have opportunity to, to share good news, share the story, answer questions of faith and doubt in universities, in business places in London, and all sorts of opportunities around the world. And, and they were kind of reflecting on, on the challenge of what it means to bring the gospel into today's culture, into a culture that has very little respect for, for the scriptures, saying, well, who believes that old stuff anyway anymore? That we believe in other things now. And reminded that, that still this, this truth of the Scripture is true, even though the culture may have supposedly moved on, that it would treat with disdain the, the truths of, of the Bible. Yet we need not lose heart nor hope, for God is still reigning and ruling. Reminded that every generation needs to hear again the gospel. Every generation needs to find new ways of expressing, clothing the gospel in new clothes for a new generation, yet still remaining true to the gospel. Again, this was true in the Old Testament, again and again, the cycle of repeating witness to generation upon generation, of, of calling people to believe in the one true God, of how quickly we forget, how quickly a, a, a people, a family, parents, grandparents, an encounter with God, and how that can just become routine, mundane, ordinary, 
just cultural Christian rather than conviction Christian. Here too, the king, Belshazzar, he'd seen the transformation firsthand, but it hadn't affected him. One of the things we're committed to praying for, for Tim and for Kate in their, in their work with the rising generations of, uh, of helping those who are within the orbit of faith to have their own encounter, their own moment of bowing the knee before Jesus, of, of confessing him as Savior and Lord themselves. Because it's not enough just to have the faith of the family and of the parents. You know that. The story reminds us. It reminds us that in a culture that has moved on, when there seem to be victories won, culture moves on. I was talking to someone and uh, reflecting on all the things that are, are, are kind of moving through Parliament at the moment, and, uh, and uh, this person walks past every day at the home that William Wilberforce lived in, in Clapham, and sees the plaque and is inspired about uh, the, 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 the victories that have been won in, the, in Jesus' name. And then moves into the land and the, the orbit of the political sphere and sees the, the challenges of today. Of assisted dying bills and, and Brexit and the erosion of freedoms. Of how quickly we forget the battles that have been won and how quickly society moves and still to contend. Maybe Daniel and his friends felt something of that. They, they, they maybe felt humiliated. They were in a minority. They were surrounded by, by people who were indulging in great decadence and sinfulness and callous disregard for the things of God. And they were ridiculed because they didn't participate. And yet one of the examples of Daniel and his, his uh, three friends is that they remain as followers of the Lord even amongst the challenges that are posed to them and remain true even when everything else says conform, conform, give it over, compromise, give up. In verse 4, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, stone and wood, a direct affront to God's sovereignty, kind of in the, in the acclamation of these gods made of, of, of all sorts of things, the idols bringing these sacred things that were used in worship for the one true living holy God, kind of used as a celebration of all things spiritual and yet not the one true one. And God sees. Maybe they were so full of their own spin so full of their own propaganda they thought we are the Babylonians but I know if you noticed at the end of the chapter suddenly the scene changes the Babylonians are defeated and in comes Darius Darius the Mede the changing of the seasons the changing of the guard the changing of history and yet God is sovereign over all of them encouraging to know there was a state of revelry, a state of, a state of perhaps euphoria. And for those who were true and believing to remain faithful as a remnant, 
And as such, in the midst of their banquet, writing fingers, plasterwork etched, four words, four words written, writing on the wall. It's almost comical the way it's described. Verse 6, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. If you've ever started preaching, it feels like that. It's a bit of a shame we have a perspex lectern now. And when I did my preaching class at Spurgeon's, my knees were knocking. At least it was wooden and no one could see. Belshazzar learns the danger of being careless with the sacred. No one could interpret the four words. Daniel's brought before the king. The king said, I've heard of your abilities. Promises to reward Daniel greatly as he had, but none of the others could interpret what had been written. He says, I don't, I don't really want all that stuff, thanks. It doesn't matter to me. And then goes on, before he interprets the four words, to give, I mean, it's a little bit of like a lecture, isn't it? Standing before the king and saying, well, let me tell you about your relative. Let me tell you about Nebuchadnezzar. Let me tell you of how great he was and how arrogant he became and how God humbled him. I love the audacity and the confidence and the boldness and the bravery of Daniel. And then comes on, to describe and says, you had the goblets of this temple brought to you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them and you praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you cannot see or cannot understand. It says, actually, this is idolatry. The way God had worked in your family and your, in your orbit of understanding, you've seen what it means for a man's life to be changed, to encounter the living God, for someone to be humbled from such a height and brought low and then be raised up again, transformed. You've seen this, and yet your heart is hard. And goes on to interpret. There's a challenge for us and I, I say this carefully, I've, I've not been careless about the sacred. I don't know if I understand everything about this, but there do appear to be the hints and the warnings of Scripture to say to us as we worship the loving God, yes, but the holy God too, that we are called not to be careless with things and matters that are holy. The things that God has said has set apart as, as particular testaments of signs of his grace, of his rule and his authority. For instance, in the Old Testament, there are the sons of, of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and they were killed on the spot for offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. That as the ark was being brought back into Jerusalem, it had languished in the, in the land of the Philistines. It was being brought back and there was great pomp and circumstance. And it was, it was, it was on a cart and the, and the cart hit a rut, a divot, and it stumbled. And someone reached out to stabilize it, to hold it from, stop it from falling to the floor. And 
he touched what was holy and he was unprepared, he died. And for us, we kind of go, harsh. Why is it that these goblets that were in the temple, I mean, they're just cups, particularly in a nonconformist low down the candle Baptist church. We kind of struggle with the sacred stuff. I mean, you go to some of our other sisters and brothers' churches, and, you know, I was in uh, Malta with my mum on holiday, and, and we were, you know, physical barriers in, uh, in the Catholic cathedral in, in Malta, and, and it woe betide you if you step beyond. I mean, there were guards, not because of the, the great works of art, because this was sacred space. Even in the New Testament, the call to remember that there are things that our God has defined as sacred and holy, not magical or talismans, but, but we do well to recognize the holiness and awesomeness of God. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul is writing about the Lord's Supper, and we, we use that language every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What I received, I also passed on to you, that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and, and broke it and gave thanks, and, and a cup, and it was poured out, and this is the body and blood of, of Jesus in remembrance of his death. It goes on to say in verse 27 and 28, and we, we, we don't read this, do we? Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A believer ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And the implication that because in the church in Corinth they were doing that in an unworthy manner, there was division, hostility, and, uh, and kind of categories of like the, the best Christians and the lowly ones, and they didn't really interact. He says, some of you have fallen asleep, not an indulged sermon, actually a, a way of saying you, they've died in faith, but they've died. They've been judged because they've been eating this in an unworthy manner. I don't want you to hear this as a threat or as a sort of thing of being terrified now about a holy God. But we do use rightly that phrase, the fear of the Lord, His holiness. That it's right in the context of the Lord's Supper uh, of communion that we examine ourselves, that we, we are careful as we are welcomed. Of course we are welcomed, and it's not that we, we think that, is God going to forgive us or not? Not at all. But actually, as we gather, as we're unified as one body in Christ, how dare we allow divisions to remain? That Paul says that the one who participates in this way eats or drinks judgment on himself when, when he's paying disregard or dishonoring those who are weak or sick. We worship a holy one. Daniel tells Belshazzar he's rebelled against the Lord of heaven. And the first example he gave was because he profanes the goblets of the Lord's temple. Our carelessness, sometimes with grace, ought to cause us to stop and reflect and recognize the enormous privilege of worshiping him, of being called and welcomed, not careless 
disregard. See, the challenge of the story, and it, it is a, a difficult story, is not only that, that Belshazzar is called to recognize that, yeah, you've brought judgment upon yourself in this carelessness, that actually that carelessness is leading to judgment. 24 to 28 in this chapter, the writing on the wall, the written words are many, many, tekel, parsin. I remember reading this for the first time as a new believer, and I was kind of, what's the message going to say on the wall? It's because it's profound, like the knees are knocking, and, and everyone's silent, and his ashen-faced king, and these fingers writing, and, uh, and I kind of got to a bit of these, what, what does it mean? These forwards, many, many, it means numbered, weighed, your kingdom's divided. I thought, it's not very, uh, it's not very dramatic. Scriptwriters have come up with a much, much better thing. Someone has described it like this: Amina, Amina, a shekel and fractions. What does that mean? Well, it's a little bit of a, a word play going on. I mean, the Lord's so clever that it's a pun, and, and because we've translated it, and because it was uh, in a culture way back with the Babylonians and, and uh, in, in that time, maybe we, we don't quite get this, but there's, there's a, a great kind of pun, there's a cleverness, there's an, an astuteness in what these four words mean. Daniel, under the inspiration of God, using uh, this, understands it and, and declares them numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Seems strange to us because we don't quite catch the, the sense of the pronunciation and how the language would have originally seemed. But what Daniel is saying is this God has numbered your days, King. They are numbered. They have been put on the scales of justice. God has seen them, and they have been found wanting. They are not enough. And the fraction, this division, your kingdom is divided. The writing is on the wall. Clear message of judgment to the king. The king rewards Daniel. Amazing. It's not a great message, is it? Here's the robe, here's the necklace. Daniel didn't want it, but he's given it. And suddenly, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. A few weeks ago, Phil was preaching a sermon in the morning in Mark, the series we're in, and was talking from the passage and preaching and expressing, because the passage was expressing the love of God coming in Christ. And on the way out, I was, we, you know, we stand on the door and we greet people and we say goodbye and we kind of find out if there's visitors, try to learn some names and offer for prayer. And some visitors they were passing from the north back to the southwest. It had happened to stumble across. Uh, they were stopping near. They come, came to church, and they, Phil was preaching. They took him aside. Phil, they said, um, we want to just ask you something about your message and, and, and uh, correct what you said. I, I kind of overheard that. 
I could see Phil's face at that point. Phil's a very gracious man, but I could see us like, oh, what? What did I say? He kind of looked at me like, what was going on there? And they said, you didn't preach judgment, Phil. You didn't tell people that God judged them. And they explained it a little bit more and were very... Had lots of words to tell him about how his sermon was incorrect. <laughs> and they then left and Phil said, did you hear that? And I said, I heard some of it and I was glad you were preaching today, Phil. <laughs> and we reflected on it because it was a bit like, was it, did I preach a bad sermon? Like, no, you didn't, Phil. We, we try and preach the scriptures and the passage that was being read. And actually, neither of us shy away from, from judgment. And it's here. In a day and age that seems to not want to understand consequence to action. In a day and age that says, it doesn't really matter what I do. Well, actually it does. That still, buried deep down in our culture and society, there is a recognition of, of justice, of wrongdoing. We only need to see what's been in the media the last two weeks. Started in Hollywood, what was described as you know, these, uh, the sex scandals of, of inappropriate actions and behavior spilt over into the world of politics, of actually people saying this was wrong. And now I need to declare the truth, say what has happened because I want something to change. And we see maybe rushed judgment in some cases. But a deep down recognition that the scriptures point to that, that our lives are held into account. That we will be before the Lord of how have we treated his son, brought honor to him or dishonor? Have we acknowledged him and confessed him with our lips? And as believers, again, the hints and the declaration that we, our salvation won't be in jeopardy, but, but what we do with, with what we've been entrusted with in faith, have held to account. May we not treat the things of God with disdain or callously. Obviously, we're welcome and there's joy and liberty and freedom and, and it's not like there's a, a kind of a, a sword of, of Damocles drawing from other kind of literature hanging over us and making us tremble with fear and thinking, oh my goodness, God's going to smite me. That's not what we speak of. Kate, dear Kate, on the way in was saying, she was just moved this morning thinking, if I knew that I had five, ten years left of life, would that change what I did now? Because I knew my time was limited. Probably. The ending of the scriptures, pray a great prayer, come Lord Jesus, that the Lord is returning, that the Lord will return and wind up history and his reign and rule will be fulfilled. Hallelujah. Yes, come Lord Jesus. But the New Testament reminds us through and through and through again, live each day with the expectation of his return. 
live at peace with one another. Let Jesus be known. Fulfill the great commandment. Let every tribe and nation and tongue hear of Jesus. Don't go to bed angry. So much of living with the present reality of God who is here. God who is with us. God who calls us to be holy as he is holy. Dear Daniel and his courageous friends lived in a culture that said, oh, no, no, no. But there were points in the national life that suddenly they were called to stand up and remain true. We have the liberty and the privilege of reading the stories and can visit the museums and see just how God worked in their life and story. May we do too. Let's pray, Jesus, Lord of history.